one through nine. Yes, Gerald, one through nine. Uh, let's remain standing for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter six, verses one through nine this morning. Amen. Maybe you be blessed by the reading of God's word this morning. You may be seated. Before I start the sermon this morning, I just uh, someone asked me. I can't wait to hear the story of the band aid. So I don't want the band aids to be a distraction from the sermon. So I'll give away what happened. Uh, I cut myself trying to uh, trim some meat, and I think I cut it to the bone. Uh, so if blood starts gushing everywhere, I'll just wipe it on my shirt or something. But that's how I, that's that. So the band-aids are from cutting my finger, trying to prepare some meat, uh, yesterday. Um, so hopefully this is not a distraction now that it is a distraction after I told a stupid story. Uh, we'll continue with this. We're, uh, we're, uh, on the tail end of our study in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians, has been given to us by God through the Apostle Paul to tell us the nature and the purpose of the local church. We've labeled this series Ecclesia. The word Ecclesia means church, but it literally means the called out ones. We've been looking at that, that God called us out from death to life and called us from the world into the church. And then what Paul did in the first three chapters he set the tone for our theology what we believe to be true about Jesus Christ he's the author and the perfecter of our faith that he's the forgiver of our sins that he doesn't hold our trespasses against us that without him we die and we perish and we spend eternity without him but because of the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection we have eternal life in him and him alone. And then we looked at the last three chapters. The last three chapters, uh, four, five, and six, are how do we live out our theology? What's the practicality of what we believe to be true? You see, if all that the Apostle Paul did for us is give us the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, then we'd kind of be the same as the demons. The demons believed in God. They just didn't trust God. They didn't let their belief of who God was 
transform how they live their life. Another way to put this is it's quite like the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew all about God. If you took a Pharisee and you took the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, and you drove a spike through the Torah when it was wrapped up, the, the Pharisees, just by looking at where the spike went through the Torah, could recite every single word that the nail penetrated without ever opening the scroll. Think, think about that for a moment. It'd be like if I took this Bible, closed it, took a nail, and drove it through this part of the Bible that a Pharisee could tell you every word it penetrated. That's how well they knew the Bible. That's how well they knew the Word of God. But Jesus says this to the Pharisees, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. What he's saying is your righteousness must transform how you live. And so Paul has done a beautiful job in, verse, in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of how do we live out what we believe to be true about God. And so here we are. It's the second part of this idea of a godly household. If you weren't with us two weeks ago, I walked us through what it looked like for a husband and wife's relationship. And we talked about the husband is to love his wife and to nurture his wife. And the wife is to come under submission to that love and respect her husband. But as I said in that sermon, and I'll say it again, men, it starts with us. It does not start with your wife's submission to you, but it starts with your love for Christ and your love for your wife. And then your wife will want to submit to that love. And now here we are in chapter 6, part 2. Paul now addresses the rest of the household. That's why I've grouped uh, verses 1 through 4. That's about children and parents. And verses 5 through 9, that's about uh, masters and slaves. But in that culture, masters were over their slaves, but the slave was part of the household. So that's the reason I've grouped it all together this morning. So we're going to look at four things. The four things are godly wisdom to children, godly wisdom to parents, godly wisdom to employees or slaves, and godly wisdom to employers. Let's look at verses 1 through 3, godly wisdom to children. It's been a very difficult sermon to prepare over the last several weeks because in our context, there's not a whole lot of parents that you are beyond parenting. And so I want to try to both address the parents in the room, because every one of us, if you have children or parents, whether they live with you or not, but I also want to address the parents like myself who our children still live in our house. So if you still live with your mom and dad and you're in this sermon, I'll speak to you first. It says this to you, child. Paul says this. This is what it looks like to have a godly home. I believe it comes out of the previous verses where the dad is setting the stage for the home. The dad is setting the stage what it looks like for a dad to love his wife and to nurture his wife and to care for his wife. And now Paul is addressing the children, but the children are going to be looking to who for the example? The dad. And he says this. 
to the children. Children, obey your parents, that's both mom and dad, in the Lord, for it is right. He gives them two commandments. He gives us, children, two commandments. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment. For it is will may go well with you and you may live long in the land. And so the first thing that he says to us is first to obey our parents. The word obey in this text means this. It means to literally to hear under. That we're to, as children, to hear under what our fathers and our mothers are saying to us. And so as I've been looking at this passage, I've thought to myself, Am I, am I setting the example to Tennyson and Cedar of what they are hearing in my home? If they're to obey me and obey what I am saying, then am I giving them the example to obey? I think a lot of times with parents, we, we push the word obedience to our children, right? We want our children to obey us, right? But the challenge for us parents is, are we giving them an example to obey? Meaning this, mom and dad, is what our words say true about how our actions are. So we, we, we want our kids to obey us and obey us and obey us, but as they are looking back to us in order to obey us, do they have a duplicitous parent meaning is the parent true to who they really say they are before god right because that's where he's coming from if if you trace the vein backwards up into chapter five he's already given the dads and the moms how to live life in a godly home and so moms and dads the challenge for us dads do we love our wives And moms, do we respect our husbands because you have children that are looking back at you as a way of obedience under what you are saying to them? The children, we are to obey our parents. The second command out of obedience is this. Not only are we to obey them, but we are to what? In the passage, it says this in verse 2. We are to honor them. Honor means this. We have the right attitude behind the act of obedience. See, what what Paul is saying to us children and to you children, it's not just your obedience that matters. It's the heart behind how you obey. Because we don't want to raise children that only outwardly obey and inwardly are defiant because they will leave your home and they will play that out when they come in to true freedom if they don't have a true heart change because of the obedience because of your example they will rebel anyone ever experienced that before so what paul is saying to the children yes you need to obey your parents but your act of obedience must be come through honoring your parents. And so children in the room, I ask this question. That's every one of us. If you are here, you are a child. Are we on the same page? 
That means you have parents. But even more importantly than that, you are a child of God. And so I ask this question to myself. As a child of God, do I obey God and all that he's commanded me? And in my obedience to God and God's word, where's my heart? Do I obey God because I should obey God? Because I'm supposed to obey God? Because I'm afraid of God's wrath on me? Or do I obey God because I honor God? Because I realize God has done such a work in my heart through the work of Christ Jesus on the cross and him resurrected that, man, I want to honor him. I want my heart to be changed towards him. You see, that was the problem with the Pharisees. They were obedient to the law of God, but they did not honor God. And so I asked the question this morning, do I both honor and obey God? That is godly wisdom in my life. And if you're a child with your parents and you leave here on Father's Day, you must ask and answer the question, do you obey your mom and dad and do you honor your mom and dad paul doesn't stop at just obedience he stops with honoring them the next one he comes to us as parents and he says this in verse four this is godly wisdom for us there's both a positive law and there's a negative law or a positive command from god and a negative command from god in this passage in one verse he says this fathers as you set the stage in your home as you're the spiritual leader of your home dads he says this do not provoke your children to anger so the first thing he says to the dads we can apply this to moms as well he says do not provoke them to anger what does it mean to provoke what it means to provoke is have an ongoing pattern in your life that isn't consistent with what you're saying. There's an inconsistency in your life and in my life that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Therefore, my child or your child has nothing to look back to. Therefore, they are led astray through my lack of integrity. What are some ways that we can provoke our children to anger? I, I believe there's several. I've just listed th four. Four ways that we can live inconsistently with our children that would provoke them to anger. And so if you're here this morning, I would tell you to take out a piece of paper and give yourself a grade on these four things. The first one is this. We can be inconsistent and provoke our children to anger through overprotection. What I mean by that, we can hover over our children in such a way that does not allow them to breathe and have life without us lording over them. Are we overprotective in our parenthood? Now the flip side to that is we have no protection for them which leads them to wrath and anger. Oh, so often, you know, we are overprotecting, not for our child, but for our own reputation. 
man, what will the people think if my child goes and does this? Or it, it's more of a reflection about me than it is about caring for them. I'm all about protecting our children. But not when it's about my reputation and about my pride. That's the first way we can provoke our children to anger. The second one is this. This is a personal one to me. Uh, We can show favoritism in the home. The child that's easier to discipline, the child that's more compliant will show favoritism to them and the one that's more rebellious or or more hard on and so children grow up and they know hey mom and dad plays favorites we see that in the book of genesis do we not with joseph and his brothers The, the older brothers rebelled against god and against their dad because they saw favoritism in their dad and so favoritism is a way to provoke children to anger the next one is this a lack of encouragement. Do we encourage our children? Because discouragement will always lead to having angry children. And so do we speak words of affirmation over them when do they do well? Or is all that we do when we speak over our children is come to them with criticism? And the last one, which is just not an exhaustive list at all, is do we push them to achievement beyond what they're capable of? Or do we push our children to a place of what we hope for them that they cannot achieve for ourselves? I'm I'm not against pushing kids to achieve. But if you're pushing your child to be the next Michael Jordan, the chances are that's not gonna happen and you're gonna push and push and push and push and push. The chances of your child being the next multi-billionaire Bill Gates with his brain is probably not going to happen. So do you have reasonable expectations for your children? Now, I'm not saying set the bar low, but I'm saying set the bar to a reasonable place. Many of the people I see in my private practice have told me one of these four. That's why I say they're personal both through my experience and through sitting with other people. That they only heard words of criticism, not words of encouragement. They only had parents pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing them. They, o- they had parents that played favoritism. And they had parents that overprotected them. That's in my personal experience working with men and women of all ages, that parents provoke them. So that's the first command that God gives to us as parents. Do not provoke our children. But the second command he gives to us is what? In this passage. Highlight this word in your Bible. Do not provoke your children to anger, but the flip side to the coin, if we're not to provoke them, what are we to do with them? It says, Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is so challenging for me. Do I both bring my children up in the discipline of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord? Those are two different things. The discipline of the Lord says we're teaching our children to obey all that God has commanded them. 
and that there's discipline in their lives when that does not happen. Here's a way that God has been doing this in my own life. It's, uh, I've trained my kids to think discipline comes at the end of the count of five. Right? One, I'll give you to the count of five. They're going to rebel and rebel and rebel to the end of five. Well, God's word says, I'm not saying not to give them grace, but I, I'm training them how to sin. I'm not training them for righteousness. And so my children can push and push and push, and they know there's some leeway in dad. That's not healthy for them. Because not, I'm not training them what God's word says to them. And the next one is the instruction. Am I training them up in the ways of the Lord? Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Verse 16 and 17, he says this, Paul does, about the word of God. All scriptures breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God or the child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is for the children of God to do the good work of God. And am I training my child in that? Are we training our children in that? And before I move to the next point, I'd say this to us as the church. One of the things we do here at the church is baby dedication. Maybe your child was dedicated here or somewhere else, but child dedication is simply this, that we, the church, are making a promise to the parents that we're going to help train children in the ways of righteousness and godliness. It's not a Sunday that we get to dress our kids in cute clothes. This is a promise the church is making to be the parents of the children. And so when I dedicated and you dedicated Cedar with me, you made a promise to me that you were going to help train my children. And so you may say to yourself, well, I don't have children. I haven't had children in my home for 30, 40 years. If you're a child of God and a member of this church, you still are a parent. If you've never had children, you are still a parent to all those children that are back in the back. And, and so when we do VBS this week, my hope and desire is that every one of you that's a member of the church would say, it's my responsibility to come to the church to help train in the righteousness of these little children coming up. It's not just for the workers. If you're a member of this church, my hope is that you would be convicted this morning to, to be a godly parent to these children, mine included. Let's move on to the next part of this passage. He's going to address slaves and masters. 
What I'd like to do is substitute the word slaves for employees and the word master uh, for employers. That's what, how it played out in the New Testament. Yes, there was abusive masters, but as in large, they were employees of the master. And so he says this to the slave first, the way he addresses the children. But again, if you read the passage in light of where we started in chapter 5, every single person he talks to is the man of the house. You see that he talks to the parents, but he talks in particular to the fathers. Now he comes to the slave masters. Well, the, the master was never a female, it was always a male. So this whole teaching of how to have a godly home centers around who? Men. It's our responsibility. And he says this to the men in this passage, but he's talking to the bondservant first. He says, bondservant, what? Obey your earthly masters. It's the same word that he just used in verse 1. Children, obey your parents. To be under instruction. And so in this context, the slave was to look at the godly master to say, is what his life and who he says he is, does it trickle down in every aspect of his life? And he says to the bondservant or the employee, he says, we must do four things in this passage. We must obey our parents or our masters. How are we to obey them? He says the first thing is this. We are to obey them with respect. Do we respect our employee? He says, obey your master with what? Fear and trembling. That's a way of respect. The same way when we read throughout the Old Testament and some in the New Testament where it says, fear God and come before him with much fear and trembling. That is a way of respect, that we respect God for who he is, a man of authority. And so do we respect God? The second one is this. For us, we are to do it with sincere hearts. He says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would to Christ. Sincerity. It means truthfully. It means that there's no blemish. There's no undivision in your heart. A a sincere, uh, the the word sincerity comes from the word, the, the Greek word, which literally meant, is it true for what it is? So in the New Testament, if you were, were to say that is a a sincere piece of clay or sincere pot, it meant that it was without blemish or without wax. Because what would happen was that a person would come and they'd build a piece of pottery, they'd fill it with water. If there was any cracks in it, they would then take some wax and fill in the cracks and then paint over top of it. So it looked to be something it wasn't. It looked to be something that had no blemishes, but it had all kinds of blemishes. It was just filled in with cracks. It was not sincere. And so how the person would know if you were to go into the market and you'd ask the, the, the buyer, the, the seller, hey, is that a sincere piece of work? And the, 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 um, the, the seller would say yes. The buyer would take it and put it in the sunlight. So what? That the melt, if it did have any blemishes, that the wax would melt. 
And what Paul is saying to us is have sincere hearts towards our employees. Let there be no wax in you. Let there be no cover up in you. Let's what be true on the outside be true what's on the inside. As to who? To Christ. That we live our lives with our employees the way we live with Christ. So be respectful, have sincere hearts. And how are we to do it? Contrary, he says. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as a bondservant of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And so what Paul is saying is, remember who you're doing it for. Everything that we do is not for our employer, but it's for the ultimate employer, Christ Jesus. Do we live our lives that way? Do we realize that what it says in Romans chapter uh, chapter 13, he says this. He said, all authority has been given to you by me. So submit to authority. So if there's someone in your life that that is abusing their authority, he said, just remember that I put them in that place for you. And so we want to live with sincere hearts. We want to live with respect uh, towards them. And we want to live with a constant reminder of who we're doing it for. And the last one is in verse 8. He says this. Do it with goodwill or with a pleasant heart. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will be received from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Do we do all that we do pleasantly? That's godly wisdom for you, the employee, now for the employer in the room. He says this. Masters or the employer, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both your and their master. See what Paul did. He just put a level playing field. Though you're the employer, though you're the, 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 the master, he says, remember that the, the master is the same true for you, the employer, as it is the employee. There is no distinction in God's economy. There is no distinction in God's economy. We're all equal. We all serve one master. Amen. It's what uh, the centurion said to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. Do you remember the centurion came to Jesus and he said to Jesus, Hey, my servant is sick and I need you to come to my house. Hurry quickly. And Jesus says, I will, I will come. And then all of a sudden the centurion says, No, you don't even have to come. All you have to do, Jesus, is speak to that. He says, because like you, a man under authority, so am I. And if I say go this way, the, 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 the soldier goes this way. So Jesus Christ is a man under authority. God's ultimate authority. Jesus, the Son of God, was under authority. And so Paul is saying to us, anyone that's on this planet that's ever been on this planet, has one master, one Lord. We're all equal. It says, both your master, yours in heaven, 
and that there is no partiality in him. So as I come to the conclusion of this message, I would ask you this question. Do you still see yourself as a child of God under his authority? See, every one of us, if you're a believer, you're still a child of God. And so do you obey God and do you honor God? If you're a member of this church this morning, you're still a parent. Whether your children are long gone, if you're in this church as a member of Powell's Chapel, you are still a parent. And there's several kids down the wing that need your parenting. And the last one is this. Whether you're an employee or an employer, the truth is this. You have the same master. And are you living your life with the recognition that you are only in the place that you are because the master of the universe has placed you in that place? And do you honor and obey him? Let us go to the Lord this morning. God, I pray that we would first and foremost this morning obey and honor you. I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that they would say to themselves, I have not been obeying God, I have not been honoring God, that this morning they'd come to a place of confessing, saying out loud, that has not been me. I've not obeyed and honored God. If there's anyone here this morning that does not know God as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray through the working of your Holy Spirit that you would say to them this morning, you would draw them to yourself to say, obey and honor me because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Because of Jesus, we have life. God, I pray that we'd be a church that would honor you obey your word and we do the same for others that we would know you through our honor and our obedience and make you known through our honor and obedience so lead us be with us and pray this in the mighty name of christ jesus this morning we'll take the lord's supper and so if the deacons would come forward i told the deacons this week about the Lord's Supper. You know, the Lord's Supper to us is, a, is given to us by Jesus as a reminder of what he did for us on the cross. And he said to his disciples in the upper room that night, hey, do this and do this in remembrance of me. Take my body and take my blood and remember me as you do it. Remember the work that I've done on the cross for you and what I'm going to do on the cross for you. And so this morning I talked to the deacons this week and I said, I'd like to do the Lord's Supper for this reason this week. I want to call us, the church, to a fast. And so I want to start our fast this morning with the Lord's Supper and I want to break our fast. I just want to, I'm calling the church tomorrow at lunch to fast. Just take one meal. If you want to do more, you can. Fasting is a discipline that God has called us to to remind us of our dependence on Him. So when we fast, you, if you fast, you'll begin to have hunger pains, and those hunger pains are to remind us of our dependency on the Lord. 
And so what I'm asking the church to do is three things. And I'm going to ask uh, Mike and Tracy to come up after we take the Lord's Supper. Frank and Teresa to come up after we take the Lord's Supper. And Miss Patty and Mr. Jerry to come up after we take the Lord's Supper. But, but I told the deacons this week, I want to fast and remind ourselves of our dependence on God. Uh, for Mike and Tracy, uh, you know how dependent you are for the Lord and for Frank and Teresa, for your brother and your dependence that God would intervene in a supernatural way for these cancers. And, and our fast is going to God saying, we're dependent on you, Lord Jesus, to intervene because in and of ourselves, we can't fix this. So we're crying out to God in dependence to him. So I want to hold that in our hand. But at the same time, I, I want to have a fast as in a remembrance and praise God for what God has done in Miss Patty, giving her clean results. We can do both. We can both celebrate the goodness of God and grieve with those who grieve. That's what the Word tells us. And so we have both tragedy in our midst and we have blessing in our midst. And I want us to go before God tomorrow at lunch thanking Him for the good news and pleading with Him on behalf of the bad news. Those, those are two things I want to fast for tomorrow. And the third one is this. I, I want to fast for VBS. You see, as cool as this building looks, as decorated as this building looks, th this, is, th this doesn't matter. In light of eternity, what matters is every child that will come down this aisle over the next five days in this building, that God, that we would plead with God to soften their hearts to receive the gospel because we cannot save them. Only Christ Jesus can take the scales off of these children's eyes and open their hearts to the gospel and that they would receive the gospels. So we need to plead with God to do that. And there's so many other things that are going on in the life of our church that are unspoken, that we're dependent on God for his mercy and his grace and his redemptive power. But we must humble ourselves and cry out to a holy God to do for us and do for these people what they cannot do for themselves. I told Jerry and Patty this week and Trace, Tracy and Mike. We live in the most advanced medical field in the world. And we're grateful for that. But we still know and believe that if God wants to rid you of cancer, he can do it in a moment. He can do that for your brother Bobby in a moment. Amen? And we come to God and we say, hey, those tests came back negative for Miss Patty. And we believe that to be true. But that's not because of the doctors. That's because of the sovereignty and the holiness of God. And we must continue to humble ourselves. And so I'm asking the church, just tomorrow at lunch, just take one meal to get on your face before God to praise him for the good news 
and to plead with him on behalf of the bad news and to plead for the children and for their parents that would come here this week for VES. Let's be reminded of that when we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. On that night when Jesus with his, with his disciples in the upper room, he gathered them and he knew what was about to happen to him. He knew that one of the twelve at the table was about to betray him and betray him with a kiss. And yet he treated all twelve the same that night. And he loved them all the same. And he said to the twelve that night, to all twelve of them, do this in remembrance of me. My body broken for you. Every one of you around this table, even you, Judas, who's about to betray me, my body was broken for you. And that's what we come and we remember the broken body of Jesus Christ this morning. God, I pray as we take this bread that it be way more than a, a, a small piece of bread, but you, through this piece of bread, will remind us of your body broken for us, that we would have life and life to the full. It's only because of your broken body that does that. Pray you will intervene in our hearts and our minds to allow us to remember your brokenness that heals us. Amen. Let's be reminded of Christ's body broken for us. Jesus, thanks for your great sacrifice. Amen. On that night that Christ was betrayed, he said this blood was the new covenant. The new covenant is replaces the old. The old covenant was sacrificial covenant. But Jesus said that he'd be the ultimate sacrifice, that we would never have to make sacrifices ever again. And his blood is a reminder of that new covenant, which he poured his life and blood out for us to cover all of our sins. It's because of the blood that we're covered. It's because of the blood that we're made righteous. It's because of the blood that we're made holy that he shed on the cross for us. This is the sign of the new covenant, Christ's blood poured out for us. May we take this in remembrance of him this morning. God, I'm grateful for your intervention. For your plan of redemption, the the great sacrifice of a holy son, for one that is unholy, undeserving, unrighteous. And yet your word says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to get ourselves right before you clean ourselves up before you. And you died in spite of all that. That we have life and life to the full. Amen. Before we dismiss, I'd like to ask Miss Teresa and Frank to come up front for Tracy and Mike to come up front and Jerry and Miss Patty to come up front. If you are a deacon or have been a deacon at this church or any other church, I'd like you to come up and Surround them and we'll lay hands on them. I want to pray for Mike and Tracy as they uh, are going through uh, his cancer treatment and what that means and for uh, Frank.
Frank and Teresa, her brother Bobby, is uh, dealing with the same thing. And then I want to pray over and praise God for the work that he's done in Miss Patty's life. God, you sit on the throne today, reigning supreme over all things. And we do come and say thank you on behalf of Jerry and Patty and what you've done in their life and on the miracle. It's not just a positive test, but it's a miracle, Lord Jesus, that you intervened. And so we praise you for that. And we honored for you that and we say thank you for that and we pray that you'd use that in their life and in my life in the life of the church to say you do good things lord jesus and that this would bring you honor and praise from each of our lives and so we come and we praise you for that and yet at the same moment god we come to you on behalf of mike and tracy and Frank and Teresa for her brother Bobby, and we plead with you to do the same. That though, God, their news was not the news that you gave to Jerry and Patty, the diagnosis of cancer, we know, God, that you are Lord over cancer. That you, Lord Jesus, are the great healer and can heal Mike and Bobby in a moment. We believe that to be true and we plead with you to that to be true. Again, so that you get praise and honor and glory, Lord Jesus. And you already know the outcome of both Mike and Bobby. You've set that in the course of history before these two men were ever born. And so God, I, I cannot say I know what your plan and your purpose is. But I cry out to you for healing. And I cry out for mercy, Lord Jesus. And I pray for their hearts Tracy's heart and Mike's heart that this would not be something Satan would get a foothold in to distract them from your glory in their lives but you continue to use this in their lives if you already done it to, to make them dependent on you and we pray for healing and God if you choose to heal him through the surgeons and the doctors we pray for wisdom for them Lord Jesus. They would know the right course of action to take to bring healing for both Mike and Bobby. I'm going to pray for Teresa and Frank as they wrestle with their news about their brother and their brother-in-law. I just pray, God, that you encourage them and let them know that you stand beside them.
Your word says we rejoice with those who rejoice and we grieve with those who grieve. And so we do both in this moment. God, we do lift up VBS to you this week. And we pray for lost children that they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus. They repent of their sins. They turn from their sins and turn to you as their Lord and Savior. We pray for that even now. And yet, God, we are very, very, very dependent on you. John, if you'd close this morning with a word of prayer, please.